Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today started his career as a true pioneer in the hip-hop world and went on to have one of the most diverse careers in entertainment. He's held roles as GM of Cold Chillin' Records, where he oversaw artists such as Daddy Kane and Biz Markey, director of publicity at Warner Brothers Records, where he guided the careers of people such as Rick James and Patty Austin, and many more crucial roles, working with artists such as Mary J. Blige and producing shows and movies like Honey and Judge Mathis. He has been nominated for multiple People's Choice Awards and Emmys, even getting an Emmy, in 2019, and has work featured in many big-name magazines and books. I'm absolutely honored to have one half of the 80s hip-hop group, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, join me today. Welcome, Alonzo Brown. Alonzo, great to have you on Say It Skillfully. Molly, thank you so much for having me. Um, It really is a pleasure, and that is a long introduction of a bio um, I, either I'm old or I'm pretty successful. I don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think you, I'm old. I, I think, think I'm old. You're the best. I think you're the best. You know, I have to say, I cannot even really pretend to recognize many of the artists that you really had a privilege to work with. And I just know you're a huge pioneer in entertainment, early days of rap, of hip hop, and then into TV and movies, uh, a very decorated and diverse career. So I'm just really looking forward to listeners hearing how you become who you are doing what you're doing. You know, please take us down your path. I started in Spanish Harlem, born and raised in Harlem, uh, Harlem hospital baby. And, um, you know, my mother and father loved music. They were part of the uh, great migration of people coming from the South into New York City and they settled in Harlem. And uh, before I was born, they used to venture into clubs. And even though my father was a chauffeur and my mother was a maid, they still aspired. Uh, So, you know, on the weekends, they would dress up and they would put on, you know, gowns. And my mother had a gown and my dad had a tux. And they were very simple people, but they wanted part of, I guess, the American dream or what the promised land promised. And so, you know, they used to play music all the time uh, in my uh, living room, like Jackie Wilson and all this kind of stuff and everything like that. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really joyous kind of, you know, as, as far as you can see with joyous. I mean, when you're poor, you don't know you're poor when you're a kid. All you know is, is there love or is there not love? And so there was a lot of love. You know, unfortunately, my father died uh, when I was 12. But my mother kept it going. And um, one of the things that she always did, she worked as a guidance counselor uh, later on uh, in a public high school. She always took us downtown. Um, And we lived on 110th Street. But she always took us downtown and we went to museums and, and stuff like that. You know, I guess just to keep us occupied, so to speak. And, you know, 
it's always like people always say, you know, what were the moments or whatever. All I can remember, my, my most vivid memory is that I lived on the seventh floor on 110th Street in Lexington. And I could look out towards downtown. I could look over the tenements uh, towards downtown. And 96th Street is what they used to call the line. And, you know, because when you take the train on the east side, on the sixth train or whatever, at 96th Street, all the white people got off. And so, so, uh, it was, it was elevated from 103rd Street. It was elevated up. And so I could look out my window and look over the tenements and I would just see a wall of these beautiful buildings. I mean, they would just, they shine like eyes to me. And I used to dream about one day living down there. I just remember that all the time. And, uh, you know, um, I, I don't, you know, I just started writing poetry, I guess. You know, I lived on the seventh floor, as I said, with Candy Johnson, lived on the 10th. And I was totally in love with Candy Johnson by the time I was like 13. And so what I would do is I would take uh, uh, my pen and I, you know, sit in the, sit in my bedroom and write poetry to her. And I never gave her any of it. But later on, when when we had a record player, we used to have this like cl- closed in play almost, like a, a briefcase record player. And my mother bought a Barry White White record. And he had these long instrumentals. And so what I did was I used to pick the needle up, put it down, and write to these long intros of Barry White. And then when he started talking, I'd take it up and do it again. So I had these yellow pads with the lines in it. And I just started writing songs or ideas to these long Barry White intros. And then, um, so, so, you know, my brother <laughs> was in a singing group called Black Pearl. And of course, he's my older brother, two years older than me, James Brown of all things. You know, he had the Afro and everything. And uh, I wanted to be in his singing group. You know, back then you had like, you know, all the, not doo-wop, that was later, but you had Blue Magic and the Shy Lights and all the cool black uh, uh, R&B soul groups. And I tried out for his uh, group and he told me, get out of here. And I'll never forget that. I still remind him of that. But um, one of the things, the transitions for me, or the changes, was after my dad died, my neighbor took us ice skating. And we lived, like I said, on 110, we lived on Lexington, but Central Park was right there with Lasper Rink on Fifth Avenue, just to give us a break. Her name was Miriam, and she was fine. So I didn't even mind going out in the wintertime just to be around her. She's like five years older than me, but I had a crush on her. So we used to go and ice skate all the time. And then, you know, we started going, me and my brother started going a lot more than we started going without her. So, of course, we couldn't afford to go. So we would jump the fence. There was this giant fence in the back of Lasker Rink. You'd have to come off the other side of it so you couldn't be seen. And then at the top of the fence, it was like, like the omen, you know, when, when Gregory Peck or whoever was being chased by dogs, you know, that kind of like pointy thing. You had to make it over that. Then you had to slide down or jump down. Um, and we used to do that along with some other kids uh, who were from like 140th Street deeper in Harlem. So the uh, supervisor got so frustrated with us. He said, listen, you guys come in here and play the music. Why don't you guys DJ? And then yeah. you can um, you can uh, uh, skate for free. So I was like, wait a minute. 
You mean we get to DJ and skate for free? <laughs> so we did that along with the other kids uh, for 40th Street. So we were the Alaska skate crew. We were actually uh, uh, in an article in New Yorker magazine. And then, you know, after that, on Saturday nights, um, we used to go uptown and hang out and smoke weed and, and drink OE. And one of the guy's cousins knew the doorman at the Renaissance uh, Ballroom. So we used to go up there and try to get in. Well, one night we did. And when we did, it was like a revelation for me. Like, black kids were wearing, like, bomber jackets and leathers, and girls had on, like, furs. They were drinking champagne, and, and the, the bar, I mean, the dance floor was packed with, like, 150 people. Now, remember, I'm 16 years old. I've never seen anything like this. They were drinking Moet Spliffs, straws. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes on, and his name was Lovebuck Starsky, and he started DJing, and he would cut the record back and forth. And then he said, throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. And everybody say, oh, yeah. And 250 people said, oh, yeah. And right then and there, I thought it was Jesus Christ. I mean, he had this light on him, it was coming down, and the power and the influence and the energy that was coming in that room, right then and there, I knew I wanted to be a rapper. So I begged my mother to give me a uh, microphone. She bought me a used synthesizer on the microphone, and I went into the... Um, community center. My friend Champ, his mother had the key. They used to throw these parties in like these little shotgun uh, uh, shotgun uh, daycare centers. And I got up there on a, on a school chair and I rocked the house and the rest is close to history. <laughs> okay. We, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just yellow pads writing Mute poetry to the beautiful woman upstairs. So wait a second. So you you went to school. You were like a school kid. Did you really glom on to school? Talk to me about how. Well, well, right after that, you know, I became like a, a neighborhood superstar, so to speak, right there in my own block. And um, my brother went to Charles Evans Hughes High School. And so I decided to go there with him. And because, you know, I'm his younger brother. And that's when I met uh, uh, Andre Harrell. And Andre was in my brother's technical electricity class. But during the, during the breaks, we used to play spades. And Andre was very, uh, he was into hip hop in the Bronx, like Africa Bambada and Cool Herc. And I was interested in hip hop in Harlem, Lubbock Starsky, DJ Hollywood, and all that. Um, so, we used to skip class and go into the stair staircase and start writing rhymes. And then one day we just decided, hey man, why don't we become a group? And so we started throwing out names, you know, Batman and Robin and Long Ranger and Tonto and Andre D and Lonnie B and all this kind of stuff. And then we decided, what about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? You know, it had a cool thing to it and everything like that. And I'll just never forget, Andre said, I'm going to be Dr. Jekyll. That was like, perfect. I could be Mr. Hyde. Not only is he the bad guy, but everything rhymes with Hyde and nothing rhymes with Jekyll. So, so I was perfect for that. So then we just decided that we were going to form a rap group. And then, um, then, then we started rehearsing 
in my mother's living room over and over and over again. And that's how the group started forming. And high school, I don't even remember. I just remember um, the principal's name was Mr. Blackman. And I got so discouraged by education, by the education I was getting there, that I became a truant. I started skipping school. And then my mother found out about it. And she said, if you don't go back to school, you're not going to be a rapper. So she took me over to Benjamin Franklin High School, which was on 116th Street near my neighborhood, so I could walk. So Benjamin Franklin at the time, at the time, had the distinct honor of having the number one high school basketball team in the country and the lowest graduation number in the history of New York school system. One year we graduated five people. Five. And so, you know, that was an education unto itself, but it kept me in, you know, it kept my mother at my, uh, you know, it pushed my, my mother was cool with that. Though. At least I was going to school. But at the same time, Audrey and I were just practicing, practicing, practicing. And then we started doing small clubs and not even clubs, just really we were doing small community centers because that's all it was. Because hip hop really wasn't on the map. It really was not. It was a local New York thing. It was the Bronx and Harlem. It really wasn't in Brooklyn, Queens, or Long Island, or any of that yet. It really wasn't. It was primarily um, local. No records had come out or anything like that. You know, and my mother was, at first she was like, what are you doing? Because she didn't know anything about it. But then one day she came to my, uh, she came to a show at uh, Clinton Center Community uh, Center and saw what I was doing. And she was like, well, at least he's not running the streets. And so she supported it. And, you know, that's when things started moving forward. It's, just, it's almost too dreamy for me. So just describe hip hop. And for you, like, I don't know, how, how is it? What is it? What did it do for you? How did it, how did you feel with it? Well, you know, it's so funny because, like I said, when I saw Love Bug, I knew what I wanted to do. And I just instinctively knew that I was going to be good at it. Um, because... I've always had a sharp mind, I think. And, you know, I started, like I said, I started writing these poems for candy and all this kind of stuff. And it just totally turned my life around. It it empowered me. I felt like, okay, this is something that I could do. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know, you know, at the time it was just like, okay, the girls think it's cool. But it wasn't a game plan for anybody. But at the same time, it was something very inspirational about it. And I really started rapping like like a lot of others at the time about black aspiration. You know, um, uh, you know, I would say things like, I got a picture of me, a color TV, and a brand new stereo, but I have no time to enjoy myself because I'm putting on an MC show. I got a room that faces Central Park. I got a lovely view. You just come on over to my crib, girl, and it'll be about me and you. You know, that kind of stuff. So it was like, this is what I want. This is what I would love to have. This is what I'm going to get when I get money or I get affluence or when I leave Harlem, leave the conditions that I'm in, leave the crime, the pain. Um, because one of, the, one of the things that was going on at the same time 
that you had this. New York was in turmoil. We had the garbage strike. You know, the Bronx was truly burning. Heroin was running rampant in my neighborhood. We used to, um, you know, you play, you'd be playing in the summer, then all of a sudden you see people running. And like, where are they running to? They weren't running away. They were running to. And you go around the corner and there'd be a guy, you'd look up and there'd be a guy there strung out on heroin out the window, hanging out the window. And he would just fling himself out the window. I've seen that numerous times. I've seen that more times than I care to imagine. And so you knew that it was like living in a horror show. You know, at the same time, the only thing that kept me going a lot of times, of course, was the love of my mom and the sternness of my mother, but also it was the fact that I had a release with this music. It, it was like, it was therapy. It helped me cope with everything. I could leave the presence of what this is, and I could take control of at least a moment in my life and dream through music. And that really um, helped me get through my adolescence. It kept me out of trouble, that's for damn sure. Um, because, you know, what everybody needs, what young people really need, they need an outlet. And they need somebody to support. They need somebody to say, yo, man, you know what? What you did was good. You can do it better, but I like what you did. That's all kids need. And I was very fortunate to get that from people. Um, and that really kept me on, on the right path. So what other older people or mentors or who else was inspiration for you? Yeah. Um, you know, it was a guy, a guy named Manny Gonzalez. And Manny, he had the keys to a lot of the community centers. And so in the beginning, Manny would, uh, he would open up the community, the big one, the Clinton Center. When I say big, I mean like you know, 100 people. Uh, kind of thing. It was a gym, basically. And he would let us do our thing with other groups. But the thing about Manny was, I didn't know that Manny was charging at the door <laughs> and not giving us any money. <laughs> he would charge a dollar, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, God bless that man. But later on, um, as we started to uh, evolve, as the group started to evolve, there were others. And then, you know, one of the pivotal moments in my early career was the club Harlem World. Now, people talk about Harlem, the world of Harlem, Harlem World, whatever, but there really was a place called Harlem World, and it was on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue, right across from Mosque Number 7, where Malcolm, X, uh, Malcolm X's mosque was, the original, I think, where he, where he ministered from. Of course, Malcolm X was gone, and everything like that, but you know, um, it was Lenox Avenue, and it was a train station right there in the corner, and that was very pivotal to me to the su success of Harlem World because Harlem World was a disco at first, and then it became a hip hop spot slash, uh, you know, meeting place, whatever. And there was a guy there named the owner was a man called Fat Jack. Fat Jack was from Detroit. 
And his right-hand man was named O.C. Talbert, who was a former preacher from Alabama who became a soul singer and then ran with Jack. And, you know, probably some nefarious things going on. There's no question about that in Harlem world. But they, they really embraced hip-hop. And so I used to walk from Lenox Avenue all the way over there to Harlem world. And they used to have these events and these clubs. And, and, and OC uh, really liked Andre and I. He just thought, these guys are different, you know? And, you know, he really became one of my main mentors. He really advised me when I need a little money, he gave me money. Like, he's the only man I know who had hundreds in his pocket, like in a roll, but could just reach in and pull out without even looking a 20. <laughs> I'm like, how does he do that? You know, rather than a hundred, you know? Uh, uh, but uh, he always encouraged me to go forward. And then um, one day, um, we had this big uh, battle, so to speak, because the Cold Crush came there. Grandmaster, everybody came through there. Everybody. They had this contest, and, and the Sugar Hill Gang uh, performed. No, no, no. No, what happened was Sugar Hill Gang and before them, Sylvia Robinson uh, came by. So there was a party in her name, and she didn't want to even go because her cousin put her name on it. But she said, no, I'm going to go. So she goes, and she sees hip-hop for the first time, and she goes home and talks to her son about it. And they decide to go get a group, put together a group. And they formed the group, and the three guys didn't even know each other. Went into the studio and recorded Rappers Delight. And when that came out, it obviously changed the trajectory of hip-hop. And so at Harlem World, um, there were two brothers, Tunde Ra and Tahaka Alim, and they worked with Jack and O.C. They were musicians themselves. And they saw my uh, Andre and Isaac, and they came up to me and was like, hey, man, how would you like to record a record? Now, I'm, you know, I'm 17 years old. I'm like, sure. So, so I said, what about my man? I was like, nah, not him, just you. <laughs> and I used to tease Andre about that all the time, that I was the better rapper. And um, took me down to the recording studio to a, uh, a company called Profile, a record label, which became very famous later on. But they were floundering at the time, and they were going out of business. And so we recorded this record for Young Ladies, and I was Lonnie Love. Uh, and uh, it did pretty well in New York, but that was about it. But they wanted to record another one. Profile did. And I said, well, I got to bring my partner, Andre, with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so we went into Queens and recorded uh, 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 a record. And that record was Genius Love. We took uh, Genius Love soundtrack. Uh, and recorded the record, I'm sorry, it was called Genius Rap, and put that out, and that record just launched us. It was like a rocket. And then all of a sudden, not only were we famous in New York, we have been to Philadelphia, you know, um, it was regional still. Hip-hop was regional. And so um, when you talk about mentors, it really was O.C. and the Aleens who had continued to guide me to this day. Uh, who really encouraged me. One thing they always did, which I like to do as a director, they never said, 
you know what, after a take, they go, yo, that was all right, you know, boom, 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 boom. No, they said, you know what, that was great. Now just give me one more. And that always stuck with me, that even though they knew or they might know it was okay or whatever, they always said, that was great, but just give me one more. And, um, you know, it's such a confidence builder in anything you do, even if it's, if it's sports, if it's writing, if it's, it's just in your daily work, that somebody acknowledges that it was good. But just give me one more. So those were the main mentors uh, that guided me through my early career. That's so brilliant. Okay, fast forward for us. So you were destined, you knew you were going to be successful at this. You knew you were going to be great at it. You've got a record. Okay, and then mm -hmm. how does it all launch from there? Well, um, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, we recorded a bunch of, a bunch of joints, and then we, um, they were okay. They weren't great, but we, you know, at the time, because it wasn't a lot of money, Andre went to work at Wins 1010 Radio in New York, the news radio, and he was a sales uh accountant. And I went to work as an intern at the American Stock Exchange uh, through, through, a, through a connection. And so we both had to wear suits. I remember Andre borrowed uh, my mother's credit card and bought a suit at Macy's <laughs> so he could have a bow tie and a shirt. And um, I, every morning I used to get up and go down and, you know, be on the trading floor at the time, of course, wasn't all this uh, computers and electric and all this kind of stuff. We're talking early 80s, I think. And so I was a runner on the trading floor and they would give orders and I'd have to go and take the orders and give it to somebody else so they could execute the orders. Um, but I learned a lot. Like it was just, I, was, I learned about the look of business. And it wasn't so much like I didn't have a mentor there. I wish I did right now, but I didn't have a mentor there. It was very clubbish, obviously, and for a young black kid, you know, they weren't exactly, you know, looking at it like that. But um, it just, it just, it, it felt like I belonged there. I belonged as part of a, 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 a group, a company, an environment. And so I had to wear a suit and tie, just like Andre. So we used to go from our jobs to perform in suit and ties. And so we became the champagne of rap. So when everybody else was doing whatever they were doing with the gear, with the jeans, with the this, with the that, um, Jacob and I would show up with double-breasted suits on and we perform. <laughs> and, 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 you know, people really dug it. You know, it really separated us. But it was really part of our personal identity. Huh? So, you know, we started being managed by Russell Simmons. And at the time, Russell had um, a small stable, Curtis Blow, Fat, no, he didn't have Fat Boys. He had Curtis Blow, UTFO, and Houdini. And then along came his little brother, Run, who was on Profile Records. And then when that exploded, when Run DMC hit, we both knew, okay, it was over. Like, 
you know, they, oh, he had LL too. That's right. We had LL. Um, and so we decided that we were just going to like, okay, we're not moving, you know, anyway, whatever. So Andre actually went to work for Russell and I went to work for the Wiz, the electronic store on 47th Street. And my biggest accomplishment at the time was I sold a television to Walter Cronkite, believe it or not. That was a big deal. <laughs> that was a big deal for me. I'm like, oh, this is Walter Cronkite. So anyway, for your for your uh, listeners, he was probably the greatest television network anchor of all time uh, at CBS. Um, but the love of the business was still there. And so uh, fast forward, when Andre got his deal at Uptown, um, that was the time when a lot of hip-hop uh, entrepreneurs were coming out. Russell had Def Jam, you had LaFace down in Atlanta, and you had Cold Chiller Records uh, here in New York. And so uh, Tyrone Williams, who's the head of Cold Chiller, was like, wait a minute, if Andre's doing that, what about that other guy? Because Tyrone, we all do each other and everything like that. You know, he said, I need somebody that can um, talk to my artist and actually put two sentences together uh, for white people to explain this whole thing. So I went over to uh, Cold Chillin' and became uh, head of promotions and general manager over there. But that was the toughest job I ever had because I had to take records like Biz Marquee, The Vapors, down the radio stations who hated hip hop and try to get it banked, try to get it uh, uh, played. At the same time, when you had Luther Vandross and Anita Baker and all these other ones, and they were like, if you don't get this trash out of here, we're going to throw you out. Basically, that was their uh, 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 feeling towards hip hop at the time. And so I just remember I was down at the station. I got a call. The lady at the reception said, you allowed to Brown? Yeah, it's called for you. I'm like, okay. I pick it up. It's Tyrone Williams. She's like, I need you to come up to the station. I mean, to the record label right now. And I remember my first meeting with Ty. He says, listen, if you're good at what you do, I'll give you a raise. If you're not, you're fired. So usually I'd take a train or whatever, a cab back to the to the um, to the label. This time I walked. <laughs> I didn't want to hear it. So I get there, I said, all right, guys, let's sit down. He says, um, so I just want to give you some news. You're fired as the promotion man. I'm like, well, he says, but you're hired as the publicist because Big Daddy Kane missed his interview with uh, a Spin Magazine, and now I need a publicist. So you're the new publicist. So the great thing about uh, uh, being at an independent label, especially an independent hip-hop label, a black label, whatever, is that you had multiple jobs because nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody. I don't care what they say, nobody. Because there was nobody to learn from. So it's not like if you started a, let's just say, a, uh, a cake-making company, you know, you can go ahead and talk to other cake makers or other, you know, bakers or somebody that does frosting or hire someone. It was none of that. So everybody had to sink or swim on their abilities. And some made it and some different and some didn't. But you had the opportunity to try because there was nobody else. 
not like you're going to pick somebody from Columbia Records. They weren't coming over. So you go get your man who you could trust, who you knew would work hard, and see if he worked out. And so that's what happened. And Tyrone became a real, somehow, some way, mentor to me also. You know? And um, and I did my job so well that Coach Hillen was distributed to Warner Brothers. So I did the publicity job so well that Warner Brothers hired me as a publicist. And that's how I moved to Warner Brothers. So I moved from a small office facing an air conditioner in a box, surrounded by boxes. I felt like me, Harvey Oswald in the uh, sixth floor, you know? And uh, I moved to 75 Rockefeller Plaza, 25th floor with a view overlooking Central Park. And, and you know, that was great. And then from there, um, I moved on to, after like a year and a half, I was scooped up by a Records and became their a person. And that was great. And one of the things that changed my trajectory again is that AM had a film division. They did the Mighty Quinn and they did a, a couple of other joints, Mississippi Masala, some independent things. And I became good friends with a guy named Dale Pollock. And Dale uh, was really cool. And Barry Michael Cooper had just finished New Jack City. And so with New Jack City, he calls me up. He's like, I got my new movie. I understand that you know Dale Pollock. What about getting my movie over there? I brought the movie to him. I brought the, the script to him. We flew Barry out and everything. And I just remember, we, I, was, I was in L.A. at the time. I remember getting into Dale's car afterward. He had a green convertible Jaguar. And he passed me a joint. He said, welcome to Hollywood. As we rolled down Sunset Boulevard. It was very surreal. So that was my first sort of move into the Hollywood game. And so, it, so during that time, RJ had become extremely successful at Uptown. And um, he called me up like a year later. Um, and he was like, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I mean, you know, I'm chilling. He said, okay, well, look, real quick. I just got a, uh, a new deal for film and television at uh, Universal. And you're going to be the president of the film and television division. Uh, here's the ladies number at Human Resources. I got to go. Bye. Boom. It hangs up. And next day, I was on a lot at Universal in a golf cart with this lady looking at um, spaces. But the thing that I remember about that time, because it really wasn't easy. I got thrown into this thing, but I knew I was going to make it happen. Um, RJ had a meeting with a big lawyer who was going to represent us a lunch meeting, flew out to L.A. And then he comes back and he comes to the office and he's laughing. And I said, what are you laughing about? He says, well, when I got there, the, the lawyer had a list. I said, what's this list? And I, he said, it was all the people that should, I should hire, the person I should hire to run the thing. I said, I, I already hired somebody. He said, who? I just said to the lawyer, Alonzo Brown, the lawyer said, who's that? Fire him. And he just already kept laughing. And I didn't think it was funny at all. But he explained to, to the guy, he said, listen, he knows me. He has instincts. He understands what I want to do. He'll get the town. He'll get that. But these other people don't know anything. And what they did was it just lit a fire under me that everybody 
of my peers or supposed peers was against me, so to speak. Not even against me. I just had to beat them all. I had to beat them all. And so I dove into this thing. I dove into it. I didn't know how to pull people in. I knew a few people in Hollywood, a couple of actors, yada, 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 yada. So I said to myself, what am I going to do? I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to open a restaurant. I had no restaurant experience or nothing. But I had been to this restaurant in Beverly Hills, and the guy had no business. He had nobody coming in. He was a total idiot. And I said, listen, I'll make you a deal. I'll bring the people. You cook the food. Keep the doors open. My only uh, request is that you put fried chicken on this menu. The restaurant's called The Pyramid. And he did. And I promoted, promoted for two weeks, and everybody came. Dr. Trey came. Snoop Dogg came. Uh, everybody came out of L.A. Vanity Fair came. And they were following Andre. And the place just took off. And then all of a sudden, it became the center of the black creative, so to speak. It became a place where people could go because there was no cool, hip kind of a restaurant lounge for black Hollywood or people who wanted to be in it to, to connect. And so that became that. And that became my power base. And from there, in, 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 I started at Uptown and in two years, we had New York Undercover on the air, on the air. And that television show broke so many artists uh, because hip-hop artists, especially hip-hop artists, had nowhere to go. And black artists, black actors, had nowhere to go. There was nothing. So we came at the right time of the convergence of the beginning of Fox television. Fox had Living Color, Living Single, Martin. And that was about it. And so here we are with New York Undercover. And it's an interesting story because we, after the first year, we went back to Universal and said, okay, we understand you need this person called the showrunner. So who's the biggest showrunner you have on your lot? They said, Dick Wolf. We said, all right, we want to meet him. No fear, nothing. We're out here to win. That's what we're out here to do. So we met with him. And, we said, and then we pitched him the idea of two cops. So, and this is the first time, not with Dick, but when we went to Fox, the first time I really encountered a little bit of racism. And we go in and we pitch it as two black cops in uh, Harlem, you know, undercover. He said, if, if Miami Vice is MTV cops, New York undercover is hip hop cops. Now they got that right there because the one thing, I, I know for sure you have to frame things. So anyway, they were like, okay, uh, we like the show, but what about two black cops? Can't one be white? Now, I understand demographics and all this kind of stuff, but how do you get a white person in Harlem? Undercover? That just doesn't work. <laughs> so we settled on a Puerto Rican. <laughs> and uh, God bless that man. And, uh, and then the show came on, and that started my... Uh, Okay, I am blown away. I just am blown away by you. And so I get the panic when you're the head of um, film and television, never being in that space. But the restaurant, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, 
you you're like, I have, how did you even think about that? Well, what happened was uh, we used to go to this restaurant and the guy would give us half drinks because he had no business. There was nobody coming in. And I could tell that this guy was getting ready to go out of business. He just wasn't happy. But he had everything. He had the tablecloths. He had this. He had a full staff. He was just trying to keep it open, basically. So we started talking. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, like when you are in a hole, you got to figure out how to dig yourself out. He couldn't dig himself out. I was like, I like restaurants. I love entertaining. I love eating. I've thrown enough parties in my life. That's for damn sure. All you got to do is just turn the lights down, turn the music up. And put some fried chicken on this menu. And we'll go 50-50. And he was, what has he got to lose? So it was just it just became an opportunity. That's all it was. And I I just saw it. I just saw that, that this is entertainment. And and like I said, at the time, there was no place to go. There was no place for the cool people, the hip people, the 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 artists. So that's what it became. Okay, Alonzo, I see you seizing opportunity. I don't, there's, I don't know, it's a fearlessness perhaps. What, to what do you attribute your success? Um, two things. Number one, and you, I've got to stop and take through this one. Number one, um, I think I'm obviously a product of my environment, but I don't let it define me. I use that in communicating to others how they could become successful, whether it's the record labels or the, the film and television or whatever. Um, it's, 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 it's so instinctive now in my DNA that there's just no doubt in terms of uh, what I'm talking about, you know, there's an old saying: "You may be, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt." <laughs> and and it, my background and my upbringing instills a confidence in me. And you know, we go back to success again. When you have a little bit of success, or when you have somebody that says, "Hey, you know what? That was good, but you could do a little better." And when you do a little better. And when you can see that or feel that or others recognize that, it spurs you on to do that. And I'm a very inquisitive person. Like my friends used to call me fun facts because, you know, I can tell you a fun fact just about everything. Like it takes eight minutes for the rays of the sun to actually hit the earth. And, you know, um, you know, it, the, the earth is 92 million miles away from the sun, and I'm, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, to me, that that attributes that, and and the other part of it, plant number two, is this just no going back. That I refuse to go back. I refuse to lose. I refuse to submit. I refuse to believe that my ancestors and the people that came before me have given me this gift. The artists that came before me, they have given me their spirit. And it's up to me not only to take it and run with it, but to inspire others to do the same. And that's what drives me. And the more 
accomplishments, I should say, that I attain, the more it just affirms that I'm right and I'm on the right path and that what I'm doing uh, serves a purpose because it's very important to me. Like I've been, I've been offered a lot of different things to do like, you know, horror movies or let's do this movie and it's too, it's violent and I don't, I don't, I'm not into that. It's not what I'm about. It's not, that doesn't serve anyone to me. It's not about money. Money's very important. But if that project throws a negative energy or negative light or negative influence out there, especially when it comes to my people, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in promoting violence or cursing or bad behavior or uh, illuminating uh, 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 any dark side that I feel is dark that has other people who don't know uh, uh, don't know me or my culture or black people, whatever, and point to them, go see that's what I'm talking about. Now, part of the black experience is certainly, you know, uh, uh, struggle, projects, ghetto, violence, and I've experienced all of that. But let's talk about the human experience of overcoming that. You don't always have to show it. Like a lot of my friends, when the movie Precious came out, and no disrespect to nobody who made the movie in it or whatever. They were like, yo, have you seen Precious? I said, no, I've seen her every day when I grew up. I know Precious. I don't have to watch the movie. So I just want to go back to that little boy who was looking out over the tenement buildings down to 96th Street and dreamt about being down there and what that's like. But as you go down there, you don't lose yourself. You stay who you are. And let them recognize you for who you are. That's it. Your groundedness is off the charts. Uh, we're running short on time. I'd love to share a little bit, Alonzo, about what you're working on now. You know, I built my business on looking at what white people do in film and television and then giving it a flavor to it. My New York cover, like I said, was Miami Vice. Honey, when I wrote that, it was really an ode to my daughter, but it was really flash dance. Judge Baptist really Judge Judy. So, but you know, but it is, but each one of them have their own perspective, and it's true. Their perspective is real. So, you know, I'm looking at uh, a couple of sectors, a couple of spaces, and the one that I love the most, which I'm involved in, is uh, the audiobook business. Because I think that that's so underserved for for people of color, not just black, but people of color. Because I'm a big fan of Audible. I have over close to 600 titles on Audible. Because I try not to watch too much television, and you know, and and um, because you know a lot of it is negative right now. A lot of stuff on social media is, but I love to just sit and listen. It calms me down, and I get a lot of education through that way. But what I've realized, what I've recognized is that we're not represented there. We're not, there's so many stories that we have. There's so many, you know, you could go up and look up, you know, Abraham Lincoln and you can look up uh, uh, George Washington and you can look up business leaders like Steve Jobs and you can look up politicians like, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan. Where are our stories there? When I was 
working at the New York, uh, the American Stock Exchange, and you took the train, you saw all these women sitting there with books, real books, Jackie Collins, you know, Hollywood Wives, Lucky, and Cindy Sheldon, Master of the Game. First book I ever really read was Cindy Sheldon's Master of the Game, by the way. And <clears throat> besides a school book or two. <laughs> but now when you ride the train, everybody has on an earphone, an earplug, a headphone. Those same women. What are they listening to? They're probably listening to some music or they're listening to self-help or whatever. And black people in general tend to listen and look more than they tend to read. So I started this company called Alonzo. And Alonzo's audio is really taking experiences and writing original stories for the audiobook uh, uh, customer, but tailoring it in a way that it fits us. Again, rather than regular chicken, we're going to fry the chicken a little bit. And it's original content. So my first one is going to be Cynthia Bailey's Atlanta Diaries. As you know, or as your audience might know, Cynthia Bailey's like one of the huge housewife personalities for Atlanta Housewives, the number one housewife show. And, you know, uh, she's left and she's doing her thing. So I said to her, because I've known her for a while, I said, why don't we do a Sex in the City in Atlanta as an audio book? Because the thing about Sex in the City is that these girls just have fun. Like, usually when we write a movie or whatever about the Black experience or Black people around that age, they're really overcoming this. There's something in there that, like, oh, God, we got to see this again. Yes, maybe it's necessary, maybe it isn't, but what about fun? Because Carrie and her girls are just having fun. They have their problems. So Atlanta Diaries is about Cynthia and her two other fictional girlfriends who are looking for love, life, and happiness in the city of Atlanta. And it's not one audiobook, it's an audio series. There'll be 12 parts to it. So it's ongoing. Could it be a television show? Absolutely. Could it be a movie? Probably. But it's the beginning of that. And the difference is that we're going to add music. We're going to add sound. So when they're running down the street, you hear it. When the cars are going by, you hear it. When they're doing their nasty, the bed is squeaking, you hear it. So it's an experience. It's audio entertainment. That's what I call it. So that's the next big thing on top of a few other things that I have going on. But that's the one that's close to my heart. I love it. I am just blown away by how you've just embraced and um, learned and just, I don't know, I just have this like football image of you just hand in front, just plowing ahead. <laughs> and it's really, it's just so refreshing, you know, to see you just take it by storm. One, one thought or encouragement for folks who are about kind of leveling the playing field um, so that all of us can be, seen and heard and understood, you know, what would you love to see happen so that uh, we really can embrace the full genius? Let me just say this. The playing field will never be leveled. You've got to climb, can't climb, go around, can't go around, go under. And by all means, just bust through. But the good news right now is that technology is cheap. You know, back then, you had to literally buy a camera a real one, like, you know, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000. 
And my last um, quote uh, for everybody is this. If the Egyptians can make the pyramids in 20 years, you can make a movie with an iPhone. End the story. <laughs> just spectacular. You know, I, I, I have to just ask, we were short on time, but well, let's go quick. One uh-huh. tough conversation that you've had, because it doesn't seem to me that you would have a tough conversation. So I'm really curious if you can think of one. The, the conversation, the tough conversations is trying to get people to understand the vision. Like, why can't you see this? Like, I remember when, you know, I had this big argument with somebody about Judge Mathis. They were like, I don't get it. I mean, okay, 24 years later, I hope you got it by now. But but the conversation that I have a lot of time with people is the keeping it real conversation. And and I I argue that everything is energy. And when you put things out there, it's gonna manifest itself. There's no question about it. See, we are all spiritual people. We are. We're made by God. That's what I believe. So we come from the spirit. When you leave the spirit, or when you talk about things that hurt the spirit, harm the spirit, or kill the spirit, I can't be involved with that. And so I try to tell people not everything is good. Not all money is good. You don't have to pick that up. You know, and it's hard to say that to people, obviously, and I agree with um, when they're going through their lives. But I can tell them I went through mine. I went through mine. I've had plenty of opportunity to go, you know, to use my position to do that. Even even when I was a rapper, drug dealers used to come up to me and go, yo, you going out of Philly? Why don't you take this? Take this bag. You know, you probably make more money than you was rapping. I knew better. I just I just knew that what would happen. Well, what would my mother think? That's the one thing, for sure. So so my advice is that connect to the spirit and look at what's really going on and keep your head down. Because if you're paying attention to TikTok, you're not focused. You're not focused. We are running in this, you know, it's the economy of attention right now. Everybody's looking, these companies are looking to not only keep your attention, no, to get your attention, but to keep it. And whatever they will do, whatever they will do. If you, you know, it's a video of a car running over a squirrel or a chick with her, you know, breasts out or whatever it is. How is that serving you? That's what I want to know. Serve yourself. Serve your spirit. Serve God. And you'll be all right. I can just see how you are manifesting your dreams and really inspiring, I hope, listeners just to to think big and let it rip. And um, it's super inspiring to have had this little taste of a, a world very different to me, Alonzo. I want to really thank you. thank you for joining me. And um, maybe just in closing, if you could say one one uh, word or phrase that you think best captures the essence of you. Hmm. Um, wow. 
Uh, there's a few, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm big on Proverbs and stuff like that, you know, and there's one that says, um, probably your, your listeners have heard this, if your ship ain't coming in, swim out to it. <laughs> and and number two is, you know, if you see that light at the end of the tunnel, be careful. It could be an oncoming train. Oh, we'll have to continue again, my friend. I want to thank you for being part of the solution in the biggest way. You um, are a very bright light, Alonzo. If there's a little thank tiny you. way I can be helpful to you, my friend, you let me know. You take good well, care. You too. And Molly, thank you so much. And, you know, your, what you do and the work you do is very important to everybody because, again, it serves the spirit. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of your other guests, including myself, have been offered a lot of different avenues to reach the people to talk to even have a conversation but uh you know you I, I i wanted to do this with you because i know we share the same thing and that's to lift people up and to inspire people and so i thank you and thank everybody all three people who are going to listen to this i appreciate it <laughs> you take good care alonzo we'll talk to you soon love you bye bye-bye Okay, folks, my thought for the week, and it's a favorite of Alonzo's, um, it's from Estee Lauder, who, when asked, what is success, replied, I don't know, I'm too busy working at it. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution. Kindly share this show. Amplify Alonzo's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 